no one may ever put that that literal narrative together, but the emotional feeling of it, I think, can translate at least to create a more expansive space. I'm Brian Paris, and in this episode, John Mirasola brings us an interview with guitarist and songwriter Buck Meek. Buck Meek is one of indie music's most interesting artists. He plays guitar in the band Big Thief alongside fellow alumni Adrienne Lenker, James Krivchenia, and Max Oliarchik. The band just released its new album, UFOF, to basically universal critical acclaim. In 2018, Buck released his own uh, excellent debut LP, which took the the kind of muted twang you hear on some uh, Big Thief songs and unleashed it on this collection of stories about outlaws and bar banter and auto repair. When I talked to Buck last month, he was getting ready to load in at the Berkeley Performance Center for his last solo date opening for Wilco's Jeff Tweedy. Uh, We began by talking about the band working with Tweedy at Wilco's Chicago studio, The Loft, and then we're off and running, cover everything from Buck's early days at Berkeley to how showing up at Joni Mitchell's house on New Year's Eve helped him finish his really lovely new song, Halo Light, which you can hear at the end of this episode. Now here's my conversation with Buck Meek. So when I heard you were touring with Jeff Tweedy, it made really intuitive sense to mm. me. Uh, you've both got these genre-bending, kind of folk rock-leaning bands that you spend a lot of your time with, but then you've also got these solo projects that feel very unique, but uh, kind of connected to your uh, your your bands as well. Um, how did this tour come about for you? Well, Jeff had originally reached out to Big Thief several years ago when we were touring Masterpiece. Um, he had found Masterpiece somehow, one way or the other, and we were playing in Chicago, I believe, um, Dahlia Hall, and he had reached out for us to just visit him at the loft, so we spent the afternoon with him there, and then um, maybe six months later, John Zorn had asked Big Thief to be a part of this Connie Converse tribute compilation record that he was producing, um, along with some other really beautiful artists, like Laurie Anderson and I think Angel Olsen and Margaret Glaspian. Um have you heard Connie Converse? I haven't. Oh, she's this incredible songwriter from like the downtown New York scene in the 50s, like with the beats and everything, who disappeared. I don't think she ever made a, a, a real record, but um, she was like pretty hot in the scene, and then she disappeared from the face of the earth, and the mystery was never solved. Um, and then I think her daughter maybe sent in a bunch of like home recordings to maybe like Light in the Attic or Capture Tracks or something, and they released these songs a handful of years ago. Um, and they're really something else, hmm. incredible songs. And so John Zorn was putting together this compilation to try to raise awareness about Connie Converse. And, um, and so we, we were just like on eternal tour. We hadn't a chance to record our contribution. Um, and we had a day off in Chicago. And so we reached out to Jeff to um, ask if he was interested in producing this Connie Converse song. And he was, so we... Yeah, we went into the studio at the loft with him for a whole day and recorded this Connie Converse song called There is a Vine. And in that day, we really, you know, deepened our friendship with him. And since then, we've just crossed paths over the years at festivals and spent a lot of time talking, you know, in between shows. And mm-hmm. um, and then, so yeah, he, he I guess, had found my, re- when I put my record out in May, he was, he uh, he's a big fan of it and asked me to join him for this tour. That's great. And how's it been? I mean, I, I have to imagine this is a this is a really unique tour for Jeff as well because it's his first album of, of original solo tracks. Yeah. Um, 
And that's got to be a different feel from from other dates you might have played with Wilco and sure. things like that. I think he's toured a lot over the years solo um, in between Wilco tours and, you know, pre-Wilco. Um, but you're right. This is the first full-length solo record of original material he's released. So, I th- yeah, supporting a, a, a record of that material I think has been really, it seems to be really inspiring for him hmm. to just like boil it down to this rue of just acoustic guitar and um such a simple setup and just to have that really naked and direct communication with the audience i think from my perspective has has been pretty fulfilling for him hmm. and as, and i mean that's that's essentially what you're doing as well uh, mm-hmm. on this tour you're you're just uh it's you with an acoustic guitar yeah has the audience been as receptive to that as to jeff's more or less, I have to fight a little bit, you know. Which, uh-huh. But to be honest, I, I like a little bit of a fight. I, whenever a giant audience is too attentive, it makes me a little bit nervous. I almost like I need to win there. I like a little bit of a fight because I grew up playing in bars, you know, and like um, I like that friction. <laughs> at least at the, at the beginning of a show, to have to kind of win people over. Are there songs you play in that slot to to win them over? Sure. Yeah, I've, I've been starting with this new song, Paradelia, that's kind of a little more whimsical. And, yeah, a little more romantic. Mm. (laughs) So under different circumstances, I would want to structure an entire conversation around uh, your song, Joe by the Book, Mm. Uh, because the song is, uh, on one level, it's about where to go to get your car fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, But you... You wind up pulling it off as this kind of homage to just the the music of a normal conversation. Mm. Uh, and it ends with this line, say, hey to the girls, would you bring me that shirt I lent you? How how do you wind up taking uh, just sort of a snippet of conversation and turning that into this really elevated and beautiful thing like that? I think you could take any conversation and if you put it to if you if you put it to the right melody, it, to me it's like the, the sweetest poetry. I find I just find that when people are speaking from a genuine place without like the self-awareness or the, you know, the intention of, of creating something beautiful or creating something eternal or artistic or poetic, whenever it's just coming from this more inherent place, that's when I'm moved the most. So in my songwriting process, I often either draw from true conversations I've had or heard, or at least, like, try to enact that, like, you know, reenact that, right? Do you find yourself creating characters mm-hmm. in that process? Because it seems like, uh, to me, a lot of your your songs are very sort of character-driven. They oftentimes feel like little fictional vignettes. Um, how, how do you want, where do those voices come from? Where do those characters come from? Most of my characters are sewn from, or woven from, real characters in my life or at least the seed of them um often like my closest friends or people that i've had rich you know rich connections with even in a brief moment in passing but that's often the seed and then from there if i can let my subconscious kind of surrender to that character it will often unfold into a fantasy to a certain degree you know you're just about to head over to the Berkeley Performance Center to load in for your last uh, show with Jeff on this run, um, Jeff Tweedy, that is. How does it feel to end it at Berkeley? It feels uh, full circle. It feels emotional, for sure. How so? Just because, you know, I, I grew up, Berkeley was the only school I applied to in high school. 
I went to a five-week program when I was maybe 14, 15, and um, I always wanted to go to this school. And and it was a long it was a long journey, to be honest. Like I grew up playing manouche jazz and ragtime and western swing, and I was a part of this really rich uh, social jazz community in Texas, where I grew up in the hill country. It was it was part of this community of uh, of dancers, and like you know, it was this social medium for you know for romance and for for drinking and for you know for movement and for celebration the jazz was just part of that and i grew up with this kind of inherent you know relationship with it in that regard and when i i went to berkeley to study jazz to be honest i was somewhat disillusioned at least in my own story of of what jazz was to me i didn't immediately re- resonate with the institution of or the reinstitution of jazz and the almost like competitive nature of what I like was exposed to in the school. And so it almost immediately pushed me into songwriting because I felt pretty isolated here at first. And I wasn't so much like in the virtuosic camp or, you know, the, uh, the modern camp even I was, you know, and so I kind of isolated myself and like started from scratch with my, my musical identity, started writing songs, um, this is all I, I knew how to do, really. And and over the years here, I, I ended up finding professors that I resonated with um, in that path, you know. And in the long run, as a guitar player, too, it kind of came full circle, and I found people like David Tronzo, and um, they kind of, you know, guided me into my own identity as a guitar player, more in, like, rock and roll and abstract music and all this. But it was vulnerable. and And then when I left school, I moved to New York and felt like, completely naked basically like in my musical identity I felt like I was really starting over again because I'd never even really played a show with my own songs until I moved to New York I was just kind of writing in private here at Berkeley and so to come back however many years later I guess it's 10 years now since I graduated performing my songs at the Berkeley Performance Center feels feels emotional you know (laughs) yeah because I I, at this point I can feel the context of the impact that Berkeley had on me but it's not what I expected you know Hmm. I think it was really powerful but almost like a lot of it was the friction that I felt being here and and I think that's really important you know I mean you you've you've said you kind of like like those spaces of friction yeah uh seem to push you in a productive constructive direction Mm mm-hmm you mentioned David Tronzo in a, in a Globe interview last year, too, and so I'm really curious uh, to dive in here a little bit because mm. I don't think you're going to find another context in which someone asks you the follow-up. Totally. What, what is it that, uh, that you got from David Tronzo, who's a, um, who's a guitar professor at Berkeley? What were some of the lessons he imparted or just some of the ways that he uh, encouraged you to rethink your instrument or your playing? Sure. The most important lesson that David Tronzo imparted on me was my first lesson with Dave, which I think was maybe my third semester. I'd switched guitar instructors every semester up until maybe like halfway through my third year. I got to David's office and I may be imagining this to a certain degree, but I remember, maybe I dreamt this, but loosely based on reality, I I arrived to his office and he was sitting on his office chair cross-legged in white linen, backlit by this window, silhouetted. And I came in all nervous, you know, and I started taking my guitar out of the case and he told me to leave the guitar in the case and had me sit down and he asked me who my favorite guitar player was. And I told him that Django Reinhardt was my favorite guitar player. 
And he said, wrong answer. Come back. You can leave. Come back next week. <laughs> and I came back the next week and I'd been thinking all week, like, who's my favorite guitar? I guess. So I like had a list of I was like Django and, you know, I got like Mark Rebeau on there. And like, I got, you know, there's, there's a handful, there's a variety of people that, and he's like, it's the wrong answer. Come back next week. And, and I figured it out that I was my favorite guitar player, that that confidence, that self realization is the most essential starting point in any creative endeavor and that that's what he needed me to not not teach me but he needed me to realize that myself you know that without that self belief like the self you know belief it's just you're building all this knowledge and all this intention on on a faulty foundation you know and no matter what direction you go with your music even if you're playing even if you're recreating even if you know you're playing cover songs or whatever you're doing like if you don't have that sense of identity you're building on a weak foundation, you know? And so that was really important for me to learn, to just believe in myself, you know? And so how do you bring that kind of lesson then into a context where you're primarily writing guitar parts to accompany a, a pretty stripped-down sound mm -hmm. usually and often a very lyrically-driven mm. sound? Well, my approach is often to first honor the melody. I think that to me, like the melody is the song, you know? And so, for instance, when I sit down to learn a song with Adrienne, for instance, of Big Thief, like I'll, I'll first just learn the melody and I'll play it all over the neck and just really get to understand it and maybe like harmonize it and blah, blah, blah. But as far as constructing a part, I try to summon it from an emotional place um, and often from a narrative place. So... For instance, if, like, with the song Shark Smile, this Big Thief song, you know, this, the, the narrative, lyrical content is about this couple and their vehicle in, in love, and they, they roll their car in this violent car crash, and in this moment of, in this brief moment of uh, chaos, they, you know, they're expressing their love to each other um, on this threshold of apparent death, you know. That's like the literal story. And so my approach to composing that part was to sit with that lyrical narrative and just almost meditate with it and just notice what, what, what narrative arises in me in response. And for me, with this story specifically, the first thing that came to mind was this car flipped upside down with them in their, you know, hanging in their seatbelts, presumably dead with the radio, like the AM radio still on, like very low, maybe coming over the border from Mexico because they, maybe they're down in Texas, like driving through Big Bend, you know? And so there's this kind of fuzzy, like Mexican radio coming through with some accordions and like, so I took that imaginary narrative that was kind of oblique to the literal narrative um, and tried to write a guitar part that would enact that feeling, you know? <laughs> so I waited. I don't even play the guitar for the first half of the song until the wreck. And then when the wreck hits, I come in with this super washed out, almost like Mexican sounding part, you know, with like just these descending thirds, you know, mm -hmm. but with this really kind of distant reverb sound and like real scratchy and knowing that no one, w like no one may ever put that, that literal narrative together, but the emotional feeling of it, I think can translate at least to create a more expansive space 
in, in the emotional impact of this song. Yeah, it, um, it, it absolutely enhances the, the sort of emotional effect of that moment. Mm. Uh, and it, if nothing else, sort of focuses the listener's attention mm. on the, the emotional drama of that moment. Sure. It's what's like, I, yeah, to answer your question simply, I try to say what's unsaid. In the, in the lyrics, basically. I try to like fill in the gaps of what isn't spoken or what isn't sung with the English language and musically portray s- some narrative content. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's like, it's left to the listener to, to feel and to infer their own meaning into because I'm not, you know, I'm not explaining this. This is the first time I've ever, maybe ever explained this in words. Um, but I think that that intention is felt one way or the other, you know? And often I think that taking like an oblique approach and creating friction, like I was saying earlier, creating friction in the arrangement even, often when Adrienne is playing really hard and aggressively and, you know, blown out, I'll play like the softest possible part um, just to contrast that and create like a sense of, of depth there. And then vice versa, of course, when she's, some of her softer pieces, like I think... How, like I've, I've taken the opposite approach there too and just played like the craziest stuff you know? mm-hmm. and of course with the right mix it could it can work not that that's always my approach sometimes we're you know yeah every song i guess that's that every single song is is a new is a new story hmm. i want to talk a little bit more about uh the new big thief record by the time this interview is live. The new Big Thief record, UFOF, will be out in the world. Cool. Was the process for writing this uh, record or uh, producing this record different from prior records in any way? Mm-hmm. So Adrian and I, you know, started as a duo, um, playing mostly like soft, folky kind of songs. And then we put together the band with Max and a drummer named Jason Berger. And we rehearsed every day for like six months in his basement and just played like a hundred different, just like ran through a hundred different songs that Adrienne had in her archive. And and then we went on one really short tour for like a week that we had booked ourselves. And then we went straight into the studio and made Masterpiece. Um, so everything was like still very primordial. It came together in the studio for the most part. Like we'd been kind of workshopping songs, but it was everything changed once we got to the studio. And then capacity, we made, we arranged everything in the studio. Like we we hadn't even played those songs in any cap- capacity, no pun intended, um, until we got to Outlier Studios in New York. And we were there for a month. Every morning, she would teach us a song on the acoustic guitar, and we'd spend the afternoon arranging it. And then by evening, we'd record it. Um, there was a couple songs we re-recorded, you know, by the end of the month once we had spent some time with them. But for the most part, it was pretty off the cuff. But these, this record, um, we rented a cabin in Topanga Canyon, north of Los Angeles, last February. And Adrian brought in like 35 or so songs. And we spent a whole month learning and demoing and writing parts and, with, and recording our own demos with like a Pro Tools setup. And, and really hashed out the arrangements for a month. Um, and, and all 35 songs. And then we took those demos and spent like a few months, you know, reflecting on them and, and boiling it down to a record. So, um, we actually even had like conceptions for track order and everything with just our demos. And then when, so when we went into the studio in June in Bear Creek, uh, Washington, we kind of, we had all the arrangements hashed out for the most part and like. Um, with the intention of being able to go in and focus on 
the performance and not spend our energy in the studio arranging, you know, or learning. So yeah, it was a longer process, but it was really fulfilling. Is there a track you're really excited for people to hear on this record? Ooh, every track on this record is so different. Each track's like its own little record almost. I'm so excited for the world to hear this one. Um, we really pushed ourselves into like a more expansive sonic space with this one. Our drummer, James Kripchenia, had this setup that he deemed the Magic Box, which was basically just the craziest pedal board. Like he just got the weirdest effects pedals on this big table in the control room. And he had um, our engineer, Dom Monks, just um, send him a direct mix from the board of... He just had a line from the board so he could, while, you know, Adrian was singing vocals, for instance, he could, he could just be at the magic box and say like, yo, Dom, send me, you know, send me like the snare from the mix while she's tracking this. And then he would put it through this wild chain um, of like all these randomizers and stuff. And the magic box ended up on like almost every single track. It's as, as some texture, you know, in, in the mix. And that's really exciting for people to hear, I think. And that sounds like the yeah. the millennial version of the the drum kits in the seventies with like the gong. Oh and yeah, <laughs> like four racks of rototoms totally. and all the like twenty cymbals and all of that. Yeah, we now had we, a lot of fun. We we um, there's a song on the record called Ginny. We uh, kind of ripped off Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth, but we we hung my Collings I thirty hollow body guitar from the ceiling. Bear, Bear Creek Studios is this huge barn space with these big rafters and we hung my guitar from the like like 30 foot tall ceiling and we built this circle of amps maybe like eight or nine amps around the guitar um and just cranked them all up and and james had his magic box on the floor so he was laying on the ground in the middle of this circle and um originally we were working with this engineer dom monks who's who's like uh glenn john's engineer and he's just a total jedi but <laughs> originally we had mic'd all these amps in a circle and then Right before we were going to track, Dom was like, actually, cancel that. Like, I'm going to put a stereo pair on the on the end pin of the guitar facing, you know, in opposite directions. And so we're going to actually get, like, the proximity effect of this amp, of this guitar in the, in, the, in the middle of this circle of amps. And then the song has, I think, three chords. And so we did three passes where I would tune the guitar to an open tuning of each chord one at a time. And then just stand there with the guitar and swing it around and, like, in its open tuning, like kind of finger pick it while it was swinging around between all these amps and I'd smack it on the back and like create this circle of feedback. And, and the stereo pair is like kind of picking up that whole proximity effect as it swings around from all the amps. And uh, that's a really exciting guitar sound. I'm excited for people to hear on Ginny. I assume that's not one you're going to try to recreate live. Probably. I'll find a way. <laughs> one way or the other. Um, you, you work with a lot of Berkeley alumni. Mm. Uh, I mean, you're all the members of Big Thief, for one, but also uh, Andrew Sarlo, who's hey, produced a bunch, of your, uh, a bunch of your projects. He's produced everything of Big Thief. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for Berkeley students or recent uh, alumni on, like, how to find good collaborators in this network? Mm. Honestly, that's what I took the most from Berkeley. More than anything, the, the kids that I met here have become my deepest collaborators and my, my musical community and my support system. And I mean, a lot of us migrated to New York City right after school. And like um, to see how their creative identities have unfolded over the years has been the most inspiring part of my time here. You know, to see, to see how 10 years post-graduation has you know, unfolded into these, these artists, 
you know, really deepening their, their original music and, and their creative identities. So yeah, my advice is just like, spend as much time while you're here just making new music with your friends. Like, skip class if you have to, to like, to write a song with your bud, because that's really what's going to carry over into the real world, in my opinion. Don't skip class, but, you know, <laughs> um, kids, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the sweet stuff. Yeah. Let's end with your track, uh, Halo Light, which you released a few months ago. Uh, and to me, feels like it's coming from a, a different kind of sonic place than a lot of your other solo stuff. Yeah. Uh, can you say a few words about that? Sure. Well, writing that song was part of a cathartic healing process for me, coming to accept this separation of a relationship that had lasted for seven years and writing the verses specifically kind of guided me through this this grieving process and it was huge and like lifting this weight off of my shoulders but I reached a point where I could only go so far and the song was unfinished my grieving process was unfinished I felt like I only had so much perspective and so I just kind of set the song aside um, and tried to just you know spend time at the in the woods and take care of myself on a, on a more basic level in this process. But, um, and then through a series of coincidences, I was brought to Joni Mitchell's house on New Year's Eve <laughs> by, by a friend of a friend of a friend. It was a hilarious party. Like Seal was there singing like all these Beatles songs with her like entire holistic health team, like at her piano and all her guitars were there. And I got to sit with like the guitar that she recorded blue on, like in the corner with my ear up against this, Mar this old Martin for like an hour and um, it was a pretty like wild party, but I waited until the very end till almost everyone had filtered out and I was able to sit with Joni for a little while and speak with her and, and being with her like in her own home, surrounded by her work, you know, she, she was first a painter before she was even a musician. I don't know if you knew that, but um, she's this incredible painter and her walls are just covered in these beautiful uh, canvases. And we were sitting in her music room with her grand piano and all her dulcimers and her guitars that she'd recorded all these great records on. And, um, and she's, you know, she's on the threshold of the next life. She's, you know, she's at the end of her story. She's towards the end, but she's still so strong and so present and so lucid and so full of magic and curiosity still, even though like, of course her body is like, you know, weaker than it once was, etc. But it was such a powerful experience for me. And I went home that evening and, and wrote that chorus like in 10 minutes. Um, something about like the perspective that I gained from sitting with her and like seeing the power of like the eternal power of creativity manifest in her home and in her, you know, her presence, feeling this, this thread of songs and music that she pulled out of the ether that will that will last so far beyond her life but then also like being able to sit with the with, with her temporal form like just really struck me and gave me the perspective to finish this song and to to be honest like move through kind of the final stage of grieving in this in this relationship um so that's where that song came from here's buck meek's halo light The halo light was humble, our heather died, but tomorrow I'll buy roses. 
and hands high Little forest, oh Jenny, why did you tell the horses? Willow walls entwine you, your mother called We spoke for seven hours I found the hole you climbed through But it's too small to follow with the flowers All our love remains So why do we feel sorrow? The pain came in seasons to politics This episode is recorded by Mark Aguilar in partnership with The Burn and engineered by Darcy Davis. Our new theme music is You Made Me by the band Sleeping Lion. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley.